0: Welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. This is Greg Dowling, Head of Research and CIO at FEG, an institutional investment consultant and OCIO firm serving nonprofits across the U.S. This show spans global markets and institutional investments through conversations with some of the world's leading investment, economic, and philanthropic minds to provide insights on how institutional investors can survive and even thrive in the world of markets and finance. Today on the FEG Insight Bridge, we are trying to connect markets with policy and politics. Helping to guide us on this difficult journey is Dan Clifton, partner and head of policy research at Strategas Securities. Dan leads one of the top-ranked Washington policy teams on Wall Street, and he is a regular media guest on places like CNBC and Bloomberg. He's going to help us make sense of the current political environment, how to frame the new spending plans, and maybe more importantly, how we pay for them. We are also going to discuss Fed policy, China, and thoughts on next year's midterm elections. It should be your civic duty to listen to this jam-packed podcast on market-moving politics. Don't miss a minute. Dan, thanks for joining us on the FBG Insight Bridge.
1: Great. Thanks for having me today. Exciting time to be talking about politics. Absolutely.
0: So some of our clients are probably pretty familiar with you. You've spoken at the FEG Forum before, or they may have seen you on CNBC or Bloomberg, but for those that aren't, who are you and what is your organization?
1: First, thank you for having me. My name is Dan Clifton. I work at Strategic Securities. We're a macro investment research organization. We do investment strategy, economic strategy, technical analysis, fixed income. And I have the great pleasure of just trying to understand what's happening in Washington and what the economic and financial market implications are of political and policy changes that are happening. When I got into this business in 2007, I was the lowest guy on the totem pole in the firm, but since the financial crisis in 2008, Washington has had a much greater impact over financial markets, and I think investors are paying a lot more closer attention to what's happening here in Washington. So this is a nice blend of politics, policy, economics, stocks, all the great things that we get to combine in one, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we have to have an investment conclusion, or we're no better than the pundits that are on TV. And that's really what we're trying to get at by analyzing public policy issues.
0: And really a quick plug for you guys. It is one of our go-tos in terms of trying to help make sense of the crazy world of markets and politics and how they intersect. So it is some good stuff. And you're going to hear a little bit, just a little bit of that here today. But before we get down to business, How did you get into this business? Did you always love politics?
1: Great question. I always loved politics. You know, I was senior class president in high school. I represented the student athletes at the first college I attended before I transferred over to Rutgers. And so I always loved politics. And I started on campaigns. I basically helped people get elected at the local level that eventually rose all the way up to the state level, worked on a few presidential campaigns. As I got older, I started to get much more involved in public policy changes. And really kind of migrated from the political world into the policy world. I served in government. I served as a senior staff member for two gubernatorial administrations working on economic policy issues. And, you know, over time, that began to mold again as I began to embark on a lobbying career where I lobbied. I ran a nonprofit called the American Shareholders Association, and we lobbied on behalf of individual investors. It was a great nonpartisan organization that was very focused on policy, but it was a great blend of the interaction between financial markets and public policy. And eventually it merged into this type of Washington analysis that we do. I was fortunate enough to meet the Strategus founder, Jason Trenner years ago before he started this firm. And when he made a decision to start Strategus in 2006, he asked me to run the Washington office. And I said, look, you know, here's about 20 people who are more qualified than me. And he said, no, I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily. And so we were able to not only start a firm, but really start that firm from the ground up while we were going through the financial crisis. And I think that formed the culture of the firm in terms of being understanding of what our clients' needs are and being a very client-centric organization.
0: That's great. In the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to try to make sense of all things going on in D.C. and where there's a lot. And then we'll maybe finish up with a few fun questions. But maybe a great starting point is the environment. What is the current political environment that we find ourselves in today?
1: I think that's a great place to start because we're so focused on the day-to-day activities and it changes every day. We need to take a step back and say, what are we going through in the U.S.? And what we're going through in the U.S. right now is the single greatest period of political volatility we've had since we've come out of the Civil War over 150, 60 years ago. What we have found is that you've had eight federal elections since the financial crisis, And the voters of this country have removed the party in power in seven of those eight elections. And so we've had all Republican, we've had all Democrat, we've tried to mix it up. We said, okay, let's try this Trump guy in 2016. And if you look at where the data is today, it looks like we're going to change political parties again next November. And so that means eight of nine. So now think about if you're an investor and one year Congress is passing the Affordable Care Act and the next year The Republicans are trying to repeal it or just four years ago, literally to the day, Trump was cutting the corporate tax rate. And I spent my day very much involved in are we going to raise the corporate tax rate today? Right. So it's much harder to have certainty if you're changing political parties. And we believe that this is a function of low economic growth. We've had 2% GDP growth since the financial crisis. Voters know there's something inherently wrong and they're demanding political change. And so that's the backdrop by which this legislation and many of the issues that they're going to be debating is actually going to fall within. And there are a lot of Democrats right now who know that they're very vulnerable in their reelections, and yet they're being asked to raise taxes, do a very big spending bill. And I think that's why the process has become much more contentious and much more important for investors.
0: As a follower of all your materials, I know you kind of coined the phrase or maybe borrowed it from somebody else. I I don't know, but it's great. You kind of called it a September to remember. Well, that got kind of moved a little bit or shifted. So as we are towards the end of October, moving into November, what can we expect now?
1: Over the course of the summer, what we noticed was that stocks were at an all-time high. Investors were like, hey, I'm vaccinated. I'm going to the beach. Wake me up when things get important. And it was a nice summer, I'll say. But we saw this storm coming from Washington, and we wanted to make it very clear that you have to stand up and pay attention. And that's why we termed it the September to Remember. Our point was that the risks from Washington are changing. For the last 18 months, we've had unlimited fiscal and monetary policy. It didn't matter who was fighting with who in Washington or this or that. As long as the system was being pumped with stimulus we were going to be okay. What the September to remember is really about is that that liquidity is now being drained and we have to figure out how we're going to drain that liquidity. And so we have a laundry list of catalyst items that need to be dealt with. Is Jay Powell going to be renominated for the Federal Reserve? How is the Federal Reserve going to do its tapering? Additionally, are we going to have a government shutdown? Is Congress going to be able to raise the debt ceiling? What are we going to do about the infrastructure package? Congress is trying to pass the largest spending package when you adjust it for inflation is actually bigger than the New Deal by which we started. And then you have all this geopolitical tension happening at the same time, the Afghanistan withdrawal, and you have a lot of tensions building with China. That is just way too much bandwidth for Washington to be able to execute perfectly. And we felt that there was going to be a speed bump involved until we can resolve those issues. We were basically informed by the experience of 2013, where we had a very similar situation than we do today. And if you actually take the stock market and you take the S&P 500 and you overlay today with the S&P 500, it is trending almost perfectly. We had a ten percent drawdown in September of 2013, right into mid October. We had about a seven or eight percent drawdown now, and now we're recovering. The big difference between September of 2013 and September of 2021 is that we resolved the issues eight years ago. We just did the kick, as you mentioned. And so now it's the October to remember, the November to remember, and possibly going to be the December and January to remember. So those are things that we need to think about because we're still going to have to deal with these issues. But the great thing about markets is they're very efficient. They now understand the risks and the bookends around what those risks are, and they're able to digest it better. So we're going to go through earnings season. We're going to get through earnings, probably more important And then investors are going to be able to book out what their consensus forecast is for next year. And then it's going to be Washington all the time as we begin to debate these issues. And we start to see some of these issues coming to resolution. By the way, it's exciting and we love it, but we just urge that there's got to be a little bit of caution here for investors. You've
0: got to be exhausted. I don't know how you could keep track of all those things, but I'm glad you found time for us. Biden's kind of big push has been this Build Back Better program. The original price tag was 4000000000000 trillion. We'll, we'll actually see what the final price tag looks like. Some things are going to kind of fall out, and then some things will stay in there. Just a bigger picture, what is he trying to accomplish?
1: What I would say is that the original proposal, which was $3.5 trillion over 10 years, when the House passed this bill through committee, we estimated it was over $4.5 trillion over 10 years. We haven't seen the cost estimate for that, and there's a reason, because it was $4.5 trillion, Okay. And their goals really are several fold. They looked at the pandemic response and they said, where were the holes in the safety net during COVID? So number one was childcare. Number two was universal pre-K. Number three was the child tax credit so that consumers have more income. And so the largest portion of what the Democrats are trying to do is on this social safety net. That's about a trillion dollars. Their second largest is on health care. Do you know President Obama passed what is called the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare? During the pandemic, we made those subsidies more generous to purchase health insurance. So their first goal was to lock that in. Their second goal was to get Medicaid to people in states that haven't expanded Medicaid, about 13 states haven't done that. And then you'll see Bernie Sanders talking about getting dental vision and hearing and Medicare for senior citizens, which is a very costly we think there will be a one-year voucher for people to go out and buy dental within Medicare. And then on top of that, to pay for those healthcare initiatives, the Democrats have long wanted to get tough on drug pricing. And so they have a proposal that would basically allow the government to negotiate. And I'm saying that in quotes, negotiate, where if you don't negotiate, then you get hit with a tax of 95% on your drug sales. It's negotiation by Hugo Chavez type of way of saying that, right? But you know my point here is that the Democrats see health care as a big priority. This is a bigger health care bill than Obamacare was, and it's just one sleeve in this bill and Then the third big priority is climate change, where the Democrats are increasingly believing that we need more aggressive on climate change as we start to figure out how can we reduce emissions here in the united states and so They had a number of proposals in there to reduce emissions, such as a clean electricity standard requiring utilities to provide more renewables, and then lots of tax credits for wind, solar, battery storage, nuclear, uh, EVs, electric vehicles, electric vehicle charging stations, right? The list goes on and on. Even biofuels are big winners in this bill. And so their goal is to have this bill passed before Joe Biden leaves for Europe, which is November 1st or October 31st, that seems very unlikely, but that was their third priority. And then their fourth and fifth priority, which I don't want to minimize, are education and housing. And what I would argue to you, if you're going to try and jam this down into a smaller package, one that's going to fit more with the political environment that we're in, that education and housing provisions are likely going to get thrown out. And then the Democrats are going to have to figure out how to narrow down a lot of their child tax credit, or their healthcare proposal. So let me give you one example. In the original bill, those healthcare provisions were for 10 years, okay? Now they're gonna be for three years. So just on the Affordable Care Act alone, that's gonna save you $400, $450 billion by changing the length of the program. They're also gonna put income limits on who can qualify for these programs. Do we really want rich people getting a $12,000 benefit to go buy a Tesla? Probably not. But do you want a middle-income person who's thinking about buying a car to be able to go and buy an electric vehicle with an increased subsidy? That's probably more in line with Democratic goals. So you'll see that. And then when you pull all that together, they're probably going to get somewhere close between $1.5 trillion and $2 trillion. And then you look at that and say, OK, well, they get the package size lower. If I actually take those provisions and extend them out over a period of time, we're probably going to be right back to where we started, probably around $3 trillion. And so you know, it's a lot of budget gimmicks. It's a lot of games. Both parties do it. Senator Manchin is saying, I'm not sure I'd want to be part of this and thinks, you know, that more time is needed to get this bill done. But that's the essence of what the Democrats are trying to do in terms of this. Where they're running up against some speed bumps, though. Inflation is going up, and voters are increasingly blaming government spending for inflation. Supply chain issues are a big issue that aren't being focused on because we're so focused on this spending package. And as you know, it's a very, very limited majority where the Democrats can only lose three votes in the House, zero in the Senate. And so this is a very complicated process that we're going through in trying to get a lot of this spending passed.
0: We have the human infrastructure bill, and that's big. It's complicated. It's going to change every day (laughs) from when we record this to, you know, when it's passed. But we do have agreement, at least from a bipartisan standpoint, on the traditional infrastructure bill. But this is a really modern infrastructure bill. This isn't your dad's infrastructure bill. This isn't the Highway Act of 1956. What is actually in there and what are we paying for?
1: In addition to this other spending package that we just talked about, you're absolutely correct. There's another trillion dollars here, right? And The word trillion just makes my head spin, right?
0: Trillion here, a trillion there.
1: Now, Now it's real money. But this is like a traditional highway bill, like you reference, but then we put it on steroids and then we modernized it at the same time. And so the incremental spend that investors will see is about $550 billion. And it's a historic investment. billion for water. There's like four publicly traded water companies. It's a very small industry, and you're going to go dump all of this money in there. $75 billion for grid spending, because if you're going to have all this plug-in charging stations and all this kind of renewable energy, you're going to need to upgrade and modernize the grid system. And so the industrial companies that are very focused on grid-type spending are going to be huge beneficiaries of this. Then 110 billion dollars on highways, money for broadband. We often joke there's 20 billion dollars for port dredging. How many port dredging companies are there? But that allows bigger ships and tankers to come through. Rails which are different than Amtrak. So, you know, it's it's across the board. It's a pretty big investment. It shouldn't be a very complicated bill to pass the house, but what we have going on right now is what I call mutually assured destruction the bipartisan, moderate Democrats in the House are saying, let's pass this infrastructure bill. And the progressives are very worried that if this bill passes, the appetite for all that social spending that we talked about will fall. So Today, there's not 218 votes in the House that you need to pass a bill for the infrastructure or for the social spending. And everybody's holding each other hostage. And so it all goes or nothing goes. And there's a real push from the president to try and see if he can get an agreement on everything so that he can at least get this infrastructure bill passed before he goes to Europe And then he can claim that he's making progress on his agenda. But I got to tell you, you have 90 members in the Progressive Caucus. You have the president who was really with them for most of the time, and they're saying absolutely not. So they're going to have to figure out how to resolve that. But even the no-brainer stuff, like the infrastructure, is running into complications today.
0: You know, that's the spending side of it. When we get to actually paying for this, we're talking about some of the largest increases in in taxes since the late 60s. What does that look like?
1: Again, I have to say that the tax bill that is being proposed is by far anything that we've seen over the last fifty years. And so what happens is, you know, people will say, hey, Dan, we raised tax in nineteen ninety-three and everything was okay, or we raised taxes in 2013 and everything was okay. And I say, not all taxes are created equal. One, the size of this is much larger. The original Biden proposal was about 1.5% of the gross domestic product of the country. All of the tax increases we've done over the last 40 years are somewhere between three-tenths and four-tenths of a percent of the nation's economy. Okay, so one, in size. Two, what we are taxing. We are taxing capital formation and savings, and that tends to have the most negative effect on the economy. And so what Biden had proposed is really a couple of tax increases. The first is a major change to the U.S. corporate tax system, one, a higher corporate tax rate, which got a lot of attention. But what he was proposing was taxing worldwide income of U.S. companies. So as a company earns profit overseas, they would not only have to pay tax to the host government, they would also have to pay tax to the U.S. government. We would be one of the few countries in the world that double taxes foreign source income like that and put the US companies at a major disadvantage. On the individual side, he was proposing to tax individual income tax rates 39.6 he was trying to tax capital gains and dividends at ordinary income tax rates. So you're talking about an over 40% capital gains and dividend tax rate and a major restructuring of the estate tax, one that would move the effective tax rate on estates from 37% to 61%. And so when you look at the totality of the proposals, he was Biden was not trying to repeal the Trump tax cuts. He was not trying to repeal the Bush tax cuts. He was literally trying to repeal the Reagan tax cuts from 1981. And there's a lot of similarities between what Biden proposed and what happened in 1968, 1969, and 1976 tax bills. And so what you were starting to see is that that was probably a bit too much for Congress, that Congress is going to take these proposals and say, this is new. I don't understand this. My constituents are upset over it. How do we do a tax bill? And the more traditional tax bill came out of the House of Representatives. That tax bill raised corporate tax rates to 25%, raised the tax on multinationals, but didn't create a multinational worldwide tax system. It had a top marginal tax rate consistent with what Biden wanted. But the capital gains rate was raised to 25% with a 3.8% Obamacare tax at 28.8. And just a simple lowering of the exemption for the estate tax. So the House bill was very, what I call plain vanilla very different than what Biden was trying to do. And we looked at it and we said, look, this is going to hurt earnings. This is going to hurt growth. But a lot of what's in this bill is somewhat manageable and can be dealt with by financial markets. What you are seeing today and what you've been seeing over the last couple of days is that the Senate and the Biden administration didn't get what they wanted. So now they're saying, "Okay, we want all these new tax increases. How do we do an unrealized capital gains tax on billionaires? How do we do a stock buyback tax? And, you know, when I pull all that apart and I say to myself, okay, what is likely going to happen? That 90% of what's going to happen is in the House bill. If you have to give something to the Senate, then it will likely be the restoration of an alternative minimum tax, both at the individual and corporate level. I've been calling these kind of like backdoor tax changes. Maybe you're going to tighten up the tax credits on the foreign tax credit in the corporate tax code. I think there's going to be less focus on the rate moving forward and more focus on the deductions. And if you do that, you could probably get a more generous reinstatement of the state and local tax deduction as an offset to some of the income tax rate increases that are going to be put into this bill. But I just want to say I've seen smaller tax bills move financial markets. This is a bigger tax bill, and it is one that goes after multiple forms of capital taxation at once. So a company is going to be less profitable after taxes and your after-tax rate of return on stocks is going to be lower, both of them are going to be done at the same time. And people say, oh, it's not a big deal. We haven't done that since like 1952. Okay, So I'm not going to use the example of 1952 to say that everything is going to be fine. It just warrants some caution because this is a whole new territory that we're in.
0: All right, this is the time of year when we start working on our capital market assumptions for next year. How are these proposed tax changes going to impact S&P 500 earnings?
1: Great question. And again, it all comes down to earnings. And so if you look at the consensus 2022 forecast for earnings next year on S&P, it's going to grow about 9% next year. It's been relatively flat for the last 2 months, so it's been stable. But those numbers are subject to change. And so once you get all third quarter earnings, you'll see a pretty robust revision of what earnings are going to be. And at that point, we'll start getting much more serious. But here's the way that we have identified it. We think there's going to be a 25% corporate tax rate. We think that there's going to be a 16.5% rate on multinational income. And when we pull that together with some smaller corporate tax changes, we find that the corporate earnings are probably going to grow 5% next year rather than 9% next year. Okay, so you're chopping off 4% off earnings, it's meaningful. But if you think growth is going to be good next year, then that's going to be okay. If for some reason the consensus is wrong and the economy starts heading south, then that 4% really becomes meaningful because then you could be close to 0% earnings next year. And I don't think the market is priced for that. Alternatively, if we go in the other direction and the economy just goes up tremendously, then that 4% becomes even more manageable, right? So what I'm arguing to you is that the tax changes are a hit and they should be paid attention to, but they also have to be viewed in context of what the economy is doing at the same time. In terms of allocation, we actually think the market is completely off sides in terms of thinking about these tax increases, because there's going to be two types of tax increases, one on the corporate tax rate and one on the multinational income. When Biden released his plan, 60% of the earnings hit was going to be faced by U.S. multinationals, 40% by more domestic earnings. That House bill right now has a 13% hit on multinationals, not 60, 13, and most of the hit is on more domestic-based companies. In the give and take, that's probably going to change a little bit, and that 13% is going to go a little bit higher But as the odds of a corporate tax rate have come down over the last two days, based on all the news, it's the multinational selling off. And in fact, that should not be the case. It should be the other way around. And so I just think that the market is, they're just thinking about it a little bit differently because they're based on what happened in April. And the plan is changing and the winners and losers are changing.
0: Interesting. We're kind of going through all these different topics and everybody's been talking about all these different infrastructure bills, but debt ceiling, and we just moved that to December. Are we going to have another fight in December?
1: I think so. And now we have to raise the debt ceiling on December 3rd. The debt ceiling is a very powerful tool to mess with financial markets. Most of the stuff in Washington, we can just figure out. But the debt ceiling is a serious game. It is something I learned in 2011, that process is more important than outcome. I told my clients in July of 2011, it will get raised. Here's the path for it to get raised. Here's how it's going to get raised. And everything just went crazy in the month of July, right? And then it got raised and there were all these other effects. So I'm very focused on both outcome and process. And it's the process that we worry about. The Republicans helped the Democrats raise the debt ceiling last time around. There are still a lot of Republicans who are upset at Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell for allowing that to go through. So McConnell has zero bandwidth, zero political capital to help the Democrats raise the debt ceiling. You need 60 votes to raise the debt ceiling. Or there's two other options where you can do it alone. The first is the budget reconciliation process. It requires 51 votes. you got to go open up a reconciliation window. The Democrats have been hesitant to go down that route, largely because it creates an open amendment process and largely because if they do it that way, they have to vote on a level of debt. Do I want $4 trillion of debt? Most members of Congress don't want to vote on $4 trillion of debt. They would just rather suspend the debt ceiling for a certain date. But you can't do that in reconciliation. So they have been avoiding that. The other way to do that is you could break the filibuster for the debt ceiling and say the filibuster doesn't apply, that gives the Democrats greater flexibility. But there are certain senators who don't want to break the filibuster and that creates problems. So you're going to see a game of chicken. The White House believes that the Republicans will cave just like they caved last time. You're going to see that the Senate leadership do not want to go down the reconciliation route. And the House says, we we don't care. We just want to get it up if we got to go to reconciliation. And so I see all three sets of players in a different universe right now that tells me there's going to be some risk in the short-term credit markets as we start to approach that date now we don't believe the date is december 3rd one of the greatest stories that we've seen is the massive reduction in the budget deficit since march budget deficits down about 1.4 trillion dollars in the last five months okay this is great news and what we think is going to happen is that as we get into december Taxpayers are going to start pulling forward their income into 2021, and that's going to create some extra cash flow for the federal government. It's going to allow this to go into January. If that doesn't happen, there are some drawbacks. We passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. We immediately got to do a transfer to the general fund and it will start to drain some of those reserves. And so if we have to raise the debt ceiling in December while we're debating this fiscal bill, you know, put your seatbelt on for this. And we think the market should more appropriately, though, be pricing the risk in January rather than December. And right now the market's pricing that risk in December.
0: So a question that I have that I honestly didn't think would even be a question at at this point is will Jerome Powell be reelected as Fed chair?
1: What I call my market-leading clients, clients that tend to be ahead of the trends, they are more focused on the reappointment of Jerome Powell than they are on this big spending package. I'll tell you why. I mean, it's just, you get these relationships sometimes that are just so beautiful, they're hard to ignore. And I'll be the first person to tell you that correlation is not causation. But you can go to the betting odds and you can look at Jerome Powell's odds of being Fed chairman, And then you can take the 210 yield curve or you can take growth versus value stocks and they're literally the same chart. This is amazing development in financial markets. What the markets are saying is that the most dovish Federal Reserve chairman of our lifetime is going to be more hawkish on inflation than if Joe Biden selects somebody else to be the Federal Reserve chairman the volatility that is allowing us to see this relationship recently is all over these trading scandals going on at the Federal Reserve. And again, I'm, I'm not going to say whether people should have a right to do this or not, what the laws are. You're serving a government purpose. You shouldn't be doing that. That's the view amongst legislators. And so Janet Yellen is very committed to Jerome Powell being Fed chair. That's why Powell's odds are 70 percent. They used to be 85 percent what has happened here is that Yellen has not been able to get Democratic buy-in for Powell's reappointment. Then you throw on the trading scandals, and it basically just created another stain in the process. Interestingly, the people they want Powell replaced with, Leo Brainerd, is actually in charge of overseeing the regional Fed presidents who were trading e-mini futures during a pandemic. (laughs) So like, Nobody is innocent in this and there's equal amount of guilt and she's going to be faced with that if that she's the pick. Okay. So those are the issues that are going around right now. And what I would argue to you is that Powell has the votes in the Senate Banking Committee. He has the votes on the Senate floor but he doesn't have the support of the Senate banking chairman. And that's where this volatility is coming from. And if Powell got replaced, it's over that fact. The way I think about it is that the Fed is going to be more dovish next year. Biden has a chance to remake the entire Federal Reserve because he will have at least one open seat. He's probably going to replace Rich Clarita, whose seat comes up in January. There's talk that Randall Quares is going to step down in December. That would give Biden a third seat. And then if he gets a fourth seat, which is the chairman? He can really remake the Federal Reserve. And what the financial markets are telling you is that if that next, if those selections are made, particularly around the chairman, that that Fed is going to be more tolerant of inflation. They're more willing to keep short-term interest rates lower, and um, and that has important implications from a sector basis on financials and energy relative to growth. And if Powell gets reappointed then Powell will likely raise interest rates. And that's probably going to flatten the yield curve. And historically, that's been good for the growth trade when the yield curve begins to flatten. So it's counterintuitive to some of our clients, largely because low interest rates have been good for, say, tech companies. And I just think the framework is changing in light of higher inflation. That pick is basically got to come in the next week or two, to be honest with you, because if you want to get Senate confirmation and the next person in when the seat opens on February 5th, It's going to take some time. So if Biden is thinking about putting somebody else in there, now is the time to do it. He may actually wind up doing it before he goes to Europe.
0: Is there uh, some horse trading that goes on? Maybe Powell gets reelected, but they give something to the progressives?
1: Absolutely. There could be horse trading in either direction. From the progressive basis, they're going to get left of center economists for those three other seats that are there. Ones that are more focused on employment than inflation. I think that's going to be the only way Jay Powell would be able to go through. On the other side, the progressives are taking a really big haircut in this big fiscal package. All the dreams of the left, universal child credit payments and free community college, all that, it's all going out. And so the question is, is there a trade off that they get a new Fed chair who's much more progressive in exchange for taking the haircut on the spending package? And I think that's been an interesting speculation swirling around Washington recently as we start what I call the great shrinking of this fiscal package.
0: Yeah, just fascinating how they're all, all these things are really tied together.
1: Everything is connected in Washington, everything.
0: I think historically, at least in recent history, the incumbent president, they lose some seats, right? What is the projected magnitude? Is it going to be bigger, smaller, about the same? And what does that do to the next three years? Like, What can a Biden administration get done in the next three years?
1: After the last election, I just stopped talking about it. And what I realized that people in Washington were already on to the next election and our clients were already on to the next election. So I got kind of forced into it. But we're now at a point where you have good color of what's going to happen. And about a year out, you can really kind of put bookends around potential outcomes. And let me first say that nearly every president has gotten wiped out in their first midterm election. There are only two that have actually gained seats. That was George W. Bush after 9-11 and fdr in the in the Great Depression, and there's a lesson from that, is that people say, oh, the economy has to be good. Yeah, you want a good economy rather than a bad economy, but if you actually did the analysis, it's actually a worse economy leads to better outcomes for incumbent presidents. Both 2002 and 1934 were pretty bad economies that we were in, and that's where the seats of women won. Great economy for Trump in 2018, and he got wiped out. The average number of seats a president loses is about 28 seats. The last two, Obama and Trump, were much larger. Obama was 63 seats. Trump was about 43 seats. So we've been seeing wider swings in more recent years. And what is the big factor that drives midterm elections? Well, there are referendums on the incumbent's first two years in office. And uh, the president's approval rating is highly correlated to the number of seats that you lost. So if you plug in Biden's approval rating now, he's down by about 40 seats. Now, we don't think that the Democrats are going to lose 40 seats. There's another factor going on, and that is that independent voters haven't fully embraced Republicans like you would expect when the president's approval rating comes down. And a lot of that is just some you know, remember, rem- remembrance from Trump. So they're like, look, we didn't want Trump. Now you want us to go back there It's it's tough to do. So I think the Democrats are probably going to lose about 20 seats in the House. This is a redistricting year. The Democrats can only afford to lose five seats. The Republicans can basically redistrict five seats. But what you see happening in the off-year elections are extremely telling for what's going to happen in the midterm election. We're facing a Virginia governor's race on November 2nd. That election has already swung 8 to 10 points, where Biden won by 10. That race is tied today. And what I tried to do for my clients is just show them that if the country is really swinging eight to 10 points, that would wipe out two congressional districts for the Democrats. By the way, New Jersey has moved five or six points as well. Now, we expect the Democrats are going to win in New Jersey. But if New Jersey moves five or six points in this election, that's a sign that the Democrats could probably lose two seats in New Jersey. So off-year elections alone are showing you that four of the five seats can go in two states, it's telling you that there's a wave developing, that Biden is definitely going to have to overcome that. Biden's numbers went down because of COVID, but COVID is getting better and Biden's numbers aren't going up. There's a very strong correlation between Biden's numbers going down and GDP estimates coming down. So the economy, inflation, the first time in my lifetime I've ever seen more voters worried about inflation than I have seen them worried about unemployment. First time. And so these are longer term issues that are not going away. And that's why I think the president, you know, his numbers may bounce from here, but I think he's in an environment where voters are going to demand change, continuing this political volatility that we referred to at the beginning of this call, where it just keeps changing every two years. And it's just a symptom of our politics and a symptom of being in a low economic and income growth environment.
0: Let's assume that the projections are correct and they lose maybe 20 seats or so. What does that do to his agenda for the last two years? Is he just a lame duck president and we have to wait another two years to get something done? or Are there other things that you think the Biden administration will do through executive order or some other means?
1: First, let me say that American voters are fickle. They elect the president. They give them majorities. Two years later, they wipe them out. And then usually two years later, they reelect them. Now, that didn't happen for Trump. It didn't happen for Jimmy Carter or George W Walker Bush. But usually once he's on stage, Biden's on stage fighting with Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, his numbers go up. Okay, But right now, it's Biden with Pelosi and Schumer. And they always look like they're up to no good. And they're talking about <laughs> trillions of dollars of spending. And so it's hurting him right now, right? So sometimes getting the opposition elevated helps. But that first year of divided government has not been a good year. That's when we had the big debt ceiling fight in 2011. Uh, that's when the Democrats started impeaching. What was amazing is when we were at your conference in September of 2019, the Democrats basically said the night before that they were going for impeachment. Those are the things that happen in that third year of a presidency. The irony is that. The third year of a presidency is the best for the S&P 500 in a four-year cycle. You usually get a big sell-off into the midterm election, and the S&P 500 has not declined in the 12-month period from a midterm election in one year later. So that third year is amazing because we get caught up in gridlock. Yeah, they may kind of kill each other and stuff, but it's actually been good for stocks. And then when we get past the primaries in year four, then all of a sudden, everybody wants to work together. And we actually get a lot done in presidential election years. But in terms of substantive policy, it's just budget trench warfare. How do you get the budget passed? Do you make a deal, a little bit more defense spending for a little bit more social spending? Those are the types of things that happen. And that's then going to force Biden into the regulatory structure, particularly as it relates to climate change, given his view that there's this urgent need to be dealing with climate change.
0: Gotcha. No, that, that's helpful. So it seems like maybe the one issue that both Republicans and Democrats agree on is China. Talk to us a little bit about just on the on geopolitical front. You mentioned China a little bit earlier, but where are we with that?
1: We're at a very important inflection point with China. And I I just want to be clear, at the beginning of every administration, every side is going to try and test you and they're going to draw red lines out. And so some of this is normal. A lot of it is not normal. The idea of openly talking about taking Taiwan, doing beach exercises, like these are things that were just never discussed five or six years ago. The taking of Hong Kong, the taking of Crimea years ago. And so our sense here is that there is going to be greater geopolitical risk at a very different way than we are used to. Since the Cold War ended, there was no real geopolitical risk. It was buying opportunities when those happened. But what we are facing today is both a trade war, and a geopolitical war. that Maybe it's not physical, but it is cyber. It is definitely on the intelligence side. And so think about equity markets. In the lead into the election, 2020, you can take Donald Trump's odds of winning election, and you can literally put the Vietnam stock market over the Chinese stock market. And as uh, Trump's odds went up, Vietnam outperformed China. And as Biden's odds went up, then China outperformed Vietnam, and that was the market saying under Trump the U.S. is going to decouple from China quicker than under Biden. Okay, and it worked. Biden won. dollars is going to go down. China is going to go up by emerging markets. Like it was a beautiful scenario. And we got to February, and the market said, "Nope, I don't think so." There's something here that needs to change. And what you started to learn was that there's no difference between Biden's policy and Trump's policy. And that means that it's the official U.S. government policy now, regardless. And as you mentioned, it's got wide bipartisan support. And the Chinese saw that Biden is making much more progress with our European allies than Trump was in rallying them against it. You can almost time these periods right to the China crackdown of what they're doing both economically and on human rights. There's been a lot of action in that this year. And I would argue that Xi Jinping and China are the aggressor. Four years ago, Trump was the aggressor. So that environment has changed. And now I think we're in an environment of learning how to coexist, almost like it's a bad divorce, and you got to figure out what you're doing with your children. And so that means there's going to be enormous pressure on companies to be able to pick sides here. And if you look at what the big loser in the stock market was, are the companies that are most levered to China, the US companies that are most levered to China, they are down for the year. Okay, Stocks are up like you know 15% for the year. They are down for the year. And it won't last continually. But you are going to see that decoupling continue to move away. And it at some point is going to trigger a response that we're going to have to deal with. Now, do I think that China is going to invade Taiwan? Probably not and probably not before the 2022 Olympics, but I wouldn't be surprised if both sides are gaming for events to happen in 2023 and 2024, just so that neither side is caught off guard should something happen. And I say that from my gut. I don't have any real actionable intelligence from that, but that's my sense of where policy is going. And so this has moved fairly quickly and much faster than we would ever anticipate it. And it will have very important complications uh, for U.S. companies that have built supply chains there. And the best way to think about it is if if you're in China, you're going to be doing work for the Chinese consumer. Anything that you're producing in China today that's not going to China is going to go somewhere else. And so we think India is going to be a big winner from that, Vietnam in the short run. But we think India could wind up being a long-term winner from that. And if you look at Vietnam and India's stock market this year, they've just had a tremendous year, particularly on a relative basis to China.
0: It's, It's interesting. I mean, one, it's a good reminder that we do have the Beijing Winter Olympics here in 22, But it's also interesting that you mentioned Crimea. I believe the Russians took Crimea right after the Sochi Olympics.
1: It was the day after, right? And so you say, well, why wouldn't China want to do something before that? Well, everybody will boycott the Olympics. But very importantly, the Chinese digital currency will be released at the Winter Olympics, where they're going to try and get all the Olympians hooked on their currency as they begin to make a long-term push to become the reserve currency and replace the United States. Now, we're talking decades Right on that, but that's the goal, and they're very much into symbolism. You look at 2008, we had these magnificent Olympics in Beijing. Meanwhile, like Fannie Mae was going out of business here, and Putin was invading Georgia, the country at the same time, right? And I just remember the Western chaos versus the Eastern party, and that was China's way of saying this is where the future is. So they believe in that symbolism, they're trying to create that symbolism for 2022. That's why I don't think they'll act before then. But it could happen like the day after, to your point, <laughs> the same way Putin did it with Crimea. And, and again, I you know what I say to my father, he was born in 1945, is that you lived in the greatest period of world prosperity and peace from 1945 to 2008. Those days are over now, where you're in a much more contentious environment. Growth is much less. Geopolitical issues are much less and we're changing borders. We haven't really done that since World War II, and that creates a whole new set of issues. So I don't want people to construe this as overly bearish comments. It's just the challenges that we're facing are different. The framework is changing, and we just need to adjust to it.
0: All right, we're going to do a couple of fun questions here at the end. The way too soon and probably very wrong. Give me your kind of prediction on a couple of the Republican candidates and maybe the Democratic candidates for the next presidential election.
1: First, Donald Trump owns the Republican Party. He's remade it to his model. What I am seeing from Republican voters this year is a push for more practicality in their candidates. They want the Trump populism, but they want somebody who can handle a pandemic should that issue arise on them. And so you look at Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. He is the former chief operating officer. I think he might have been even CEO of Carlisle Group. You know, he's a rich private equity guy who won a statewide convention in Virginia, which usually brings out the more extreme parts of a party when you're elected through a convention. Okay. and by the way, he is like tied as we're speaking about this right now. And the last two polls that have come out is tied. OK, and he's getting outspent. If Youngkin wins, I think then you're going to see the Republicans say we could be more practical here. Right. So when you do this exercise, you got to say to yourself, who would fit that mold for the Republicans in 2024? I look at the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, as somebody who fits that mold. I look at somebody like Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina as somebody who who fits that mold. You know, the big names that are out there, you know, they'll be a big part of the conversation, but usually the big name does not be the person who makes it at the end of the day. So
0: that Trump, the sanus the, the Nikki Haley's, right. their names are there, but it's probably your guess. It's the way too early, probably wrong forecast are probably a little bit more practical version of that.
1: Absolutely. And again, we're all guessing here. We could be way wrong and people could make fun of me, you know, four <laughs> years out from that for saying this and Trump like wins all over again. And Trump would be formidable if he got in. But, you know, my sense here is that people want to win, they're hungry to win, and they're hungry for those policy changes. In a lot of ways, Trump's going to be viewed as right. He's going to be viewed as right on China. He's going to be viewed on right on trade. A lot of these issues that people thought he was crazy about, the Biden administration has accepted the same position as Donald Trump has on these issues, right? And so, you know, now it's not so crazy, but it was crazy four years ago. You know, I think that's becoming part of the Republican agenda and other members are going to accept it.
0: So does Biden run again?
1: I don't think so. But Biden has to say that he is running again or he's lamed up the same way Donald Trump has to say he's running again or he's just not relevant anymore. And so both of them are going to be in it until they can't be in it anymore. The problem that I see for Biden is that the Afghanistan withdrawal, a policy that most Americans support it, saw terrible execution and a lack of energy to sustain himself in that position once we got into it. And so I just don't think that voters see him as wanting it. And then, you know, I look at Vice President Harris, you know, she probably wants to be president. We always thought Andrew Cuomo was going to challenge her before he ran into his problems if she was going to be the person. And then, you know, I just read the newspaper today and I see that Jared Polis, the Democratic governor from Colorado, is talking about cutting property taxes today. A month ago, he was talking about cutting income taxes. Uh, Those are interesting ideas. But clearly, the progressives dominate the party, Uh, just the same way, you know, the conservatives dominate the Republican Party. And voters are going to be looking for who is going to be able to build upon what Biden did, the same way they're looking upon how Who could build upon what Obama did 12 years ago? It's a constantly evolving process with the party bases. And you just got to be careful not to overreach. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see the country coming a little bit more into the middle after a few years here of kind of going out to the extremes in both parties.
0: Interesting. Maybe last question for you is, if you have an interest in this and you want to cut through all the spin, so you want to avoid some of the talking heads on MSNBC or Fox News, what do you read? What do the pros read?
1: So there's a couple of really good things out there to read. The first is that we generally read Punchbowl. By the way, part of that is free. You could sign up right there. Jake Sherman, he's a former political reporter, really handled the debt ceiling at a much different level than all of the big media reporters at the major newspapers. And he's a total insider in Washington. Washington. Um, and I do think that he continues to cover the best coverage. For example, he's the one who figured out that it was going to be three years of health care. We always thought it would be there. You know, everybody writes the same article and his is different rather than 10 years of health care. Right. So I, I would go with Punchbowl. I think on Twitter, there is a person named Liam Donovan, L-I-A-N. Most people have never heard of him. He worked for Senator Cornyn, the number two Republican in the Senate. If you are into the reconciliation negotiations, there is no one better on the internet to read. I can't believe his stuff is free because, you know, my clients would pay for that type of analysis that he is doing. On certain days, he just makes me look bad you because know, he's just so good at it. So, you know, there are definitely different ways to be able to do that. And then, you know, we read all the tip sheets because what we realize is that communication People are giving one snippet to Axios, one snippet to Politico, one snippet to the Washington Post. And so our process from a public reading perspective is we go through all the major newspapers, all the Washington tip sheets, and then we have our own type of work, uh, proprietary work that we're doing. We pull all that together and we're ready to go You know, before everybody is up by getting through those. And what you realize is that the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and the New York Times write the same story. They have that one paragraph that is different than the others, and you just pull pull that out and make sure that you know everything that's going on. And we often ask ourselves, why does somebody want me to know this? Why did somebody give this to a reporter that want us to know this? And then we try and interpret it from there.
0: Well, you heard it right there. They read it, so you don't have to. They put it all together. This was absolutely fantastic. And we we sure covered a lot. So thank you very, very much for sharing your, your insights on DC and politics. Thank you, Greg. If you are interested in more information on FEG, check out our website at www.feg.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our communications so you don't miss the next episode. Please keep in mind that this information is intended to be general education that needs to be framed within the unique risk and return objectives of each client. Therefore, nobody should consider these to be FEG recommendations. This podcast was prepared by FEG. Neither the information nor any opinion expressed in this podcast constitutes an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy or sell any securities. The views and opinions expressed by guest speakers are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of their firm or of FEG.